HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program was brought to you by El Cortez. Stop in for tacos and tiki drinks at 17 Ingraham Street in Bushwick, or visit them online at elcortezbushwick.com. Coming this May from Heritage Radio Network, the surprising stories of how artists, activists, and entrepreneurs collide in one special Brooklyn community that's changing faster by the day. I am 28 years old. I live in Bushwick, Brooklyn. When I moved to Bushwick, when I moved to Brooklyn, I chose Bushwick randomly. We recently opened up in Bushwick. All over Bushwick. Bushwick. Brooklyn, Bushwick. This is Bushwick Podcast, a series that takes you behind the scenes of how people in kitchens, shops, and countless other community spaces create New York City's most dynamic neighborhood. Each week, we step into the journeys that define Bushwick and break down the forces competing to shape its future. These are local stories like you've never heard before. Join us this May, wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to The Grape Nation, your weekly wine journey. Our guest is Maximilian Riedel. We'll talk to Maximilian about why glassware is so important for the enjoyment of wine. We'll taste some wine and test some glasses for our weekly wine sip. I'm your host, Sam Ben Ruby. Stay with us for The Grape Nation on the Heritage Radio Network. We bring wine to the people. Austrian-born Maximilian Riedel is an 11th generation glassmaker. He interned at the family business at the age of 12, eventually rising to his current position of president and CEO of Riedel Glassware. His innovation, eye towards design, and expansion has made Riedel the premier glassmaker in the world. Welcome to the Grape Nation, Maximilian. Thank you, Sam. Thank you for having me. Thank you for joining us. When your people reached out to me, I was very excited because I've been wanting to talk to you for years because you play a very important role in wine. Um, I want to give our listeners a little context. So take a couple of minutes to give us a little background on your journey in life and wine that got you to where you are today, your current position 
as the president and CEO. With pleasure. So I grew up in Austria, in Tyrol, which is where the Alps are. So we don't really grow wine there, only across the border in Alto Adige, where you have delicious wines. But uh, my family was always very wine affine. And being the 11th generation, obviously, somehow determined the path of my life. Uh, I was uh, asked and uh, sometimes also pushed by my family to do a lot of internships because my family wanted me to grow up in, in a way which is very much related to the wine world. So I did a lot of internships uh, across the country, across the world, at different wineries. But uh, I would say the biggest pleasure being a glass producer and a glass maker was to work at Tiffany's. I was their very first intern here in New York, and uh, I can still sing a song about it. It probably uh, <laughs> gave me the right push into the right direction. Fine glassware, fine glassware, items, diamonds. You know, thing. it goes well, very right. well together. And uh, I would say, in 1997, uh, I really had to take a big uh, decision because this was the year when Vin Expo the biggest wine show in the world, uh, had an off-spin in Asia for the first time in Hong Kong. And uh, my father asked me to travel there with our local management. And he asked me uh, to take a decision if I would see my future in Asia, because it is the future, uh, or then it was believed to be the future of the wine world. So I went there, I came back after a couple of months, and I was amazed. I said, opportunities left and right, Dad sent me to Asia. And he says, no. I changed my mind, I have different plans. Our then already biggest export market was the United States. And our CEO left the company. So he said, uh, why don't you move to America? And this was in the year, early year 2000. And uh, I, I made the big step. And I knew somewhat of America because of my internship, because of the vacations that my family uh, every year took uh, in Florida. And of course, the relationship to the Mondavi family. I grew up with them in France. And so I came to America, the company was based in Long Island, and uh, it was a change for me, a big change, independence. What, the Alps to Long Island? Absolutely, okay. uh, being surrounded by the ocean and, <laughs> uh, and, and getting somewhat the feeling of New York. But uh, then, believe it or not, I was afraid to go to the big city. I've never been in a big city like this before, so can imagine. So I was thrown into the cold water and I was asked to run a business. And the first thing I had to do is build management. And as one or two years progressed, I realized that Long Island is not the best way or the best location to really sell real glasses around the United States. So I moved the company to New Jersey. I set my tent in Hoboken, which uh, was then just upcoming. I mean, nowadays everybody knows and raves about Hoboken and it has become as expensive, I believe, as living in Manhattan. True. Living five years in, in Hoboken, I really started to become a fan of uh, American wine culture. I learned a lot. I reinvested, meaning I, s I copied the glasses that were existent so that we could come forward with glasses which were more break resistant for the restaurant trade. I was very much influenced by Daniel Boulou, Danny Meyer. Those are the people that I was lucky to be surrounded with. And uh, they said uh, they would use Riedel if I could come forward with a more durable solution for them, which I did. And uh, uh, of course, one of my tutors was Kurt Gutenbrunner, who has an a restaurant, an Austrian restaurant called Valse. I spent a lot of time with him. And he actually introduced me to the restaurant world of the United States. And then I learned that uh, living in Hoboken was not the top of the icing, so I moved <laughs> to Tribeca. And this was probably the best time of my life. So I lived in Tribeca for six years before I moved back to Austria 
to take the helm of the company. And uh, yeah, I, I really earned m all my knowledge here in the United States, my management skills, and of course, also the passion for American wines. And here I am. Okay. So everyone has a good sense of uh, what that journey was. All right. So let's talk about, let's get right into glassware. Um, you have to, again, give me a little context and tell me how actual glassware is made and put it under the guise of fine glassware and wine glassware and, and um, decanters. Um, there's handmade glassware, which you're very well known for. There's machine made, which you've perfected. Just talk to me about the process. So when people pick a glass up, how'd this get here? Well, I think that it's very important to mention that glass, in particular wine glasses, were always reserved in the old days for wealthy people. Glass making was and still is a skill. Uh, the raw materials are most probably not the most expensive, but the energy that you have to put in, not only in terms of craftsmanship, but also being it gas-powered, electricity-powered. So making glass is expensive. And we're talking in the heart of Europe, where labor force is rare, and to work in the conditions of, of a glass factory, we have less and less glass makers who are willing to work in our trade. So it is a dying breed, ladies and gentlemen. And especially when we talk about handmade glasses, mouse-blown glasses, well, we used to only produce them in Austria in our own factory. Nowadays, we have to source them all over Europe because uh, obviously uh, consumer demand is, is increasing and uh, we have a tough time finding skilled <coughs> glassmakers. In the old days, we brought them up ourselves. We trained them. We had glassmakers in the third or fourth generation. Times have changed, so it's very difficult. And in the year 2004, we made a big step because we bought our our giant competitor, which then was Spiegelau, Nachtmann, the whole group in Bavaria. And the reason why we bought them is uh, because we wanted to have their production facilities. So we are now not only handmade at Riedel, but we are also machine-made or machine-blown, machine-pressed. So we are capable of bringing forward glass in any kind of variety uh, with any kind of technique. And what is tough about the glass market is that uh, people tend to compare our product, our price ranges with product maybe they, they get at IKEA, which is a complete different Not fair. stage, a different right. quality level, and a different performance of glasses. Um, so glass making is, uh, is, uh, is not what it used to be. People are not willing anymore to spend the money. And, uh, of course, I come from a family that was very heavily involved in lead crystal. We were cutting right. our glasses, acid polishing our glasses. A trade that is lost because people are not willing anymore to pay that kind of money. People are now Do they demand it and not want to pay for it, or it's not even necessary to... Uh, I would say it's a mixture. It depends on the markets. The United States is, uh, as a market, so different than Asia, for example. In Asia, there's still huge demand for handmade, uh, mouth-blown, cut crystal. But in the United States, over the last 20 years, so it's a very short period where we lost this kind of excitement about crystal, just to mention Waterford, for example, right. it was the brand. Even us looked up to Waterford. Where are they now? We don't hear them. We don't see them disappeared from the market. And the reason is times have Not changed. Not just in context of wine, but in general, in Waterford. General. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so you say in making Riedel glassware, this is you, you fine-tune the glass to the DNA of the grape, and the glass 
is a loudspeaker for the wine. So tell me, I think that's probably a good mission statement for you. Expand on, on those um, sayings. Well, my f even being the 11th generation in a company, in a family that does make glass since 1756, only in the last three generations we fell in love with wine. And uh, it was started by my grandfather, Professor Klaus Riedel. He was the father of the modern wine glass because he was able to create a technique that allowed us to blow an egg-shaped bowl comparison to maybe if you imagine or envision a paper cup. So every glass up until to that point where Klaus Riedel developed a new technique, every glass looked like a paper cup in the sense of form, shape. And so he was the forefather. His very first design is in the Museum of Modern Art here in New York, the best city in the world. Uh, permanent exhibition since 1960. And people then could not cope with his philosophy. He said, big wines need big glasses. And the New York Times, if I may quote them, called his first glass the fishbowl because they saw in the size of the glass, which was a glass for Pinot Noir, it's called our sommelier Burgundy Grand Cru. They saw more of a, of a, a goldfish swimming in it due to the size than serving right. fine wine. But uh, what we do, and this separates us from any other glassmaker, is uh, we don't design glasses on a drawing board. We don't uh, work with Max in this sense. We work with the wine industry. And who are the leaders in the wine industry? Are obviously the winemakers themselves. So we always develop our glasses for grapes. We are grape writer specific, always with the support of the winemakers. Without them, we couldn't do it. So we don't follow and uh, the idea of maybe wine critics, of wine publications, where there are so many now who think that they can do a better job than us in terms of designing the perfect shape to support and enhance the aromas uh, in wine. Now, we have really studied this over three generations. So we're in this since 60 years, trying to outperform ourselves, always coming forward with the best glass to show wine at its very best. And but go back in history. That. What was the realization or inspiration that you knew? Because you said everyone was getting into wine, that I have to make a bowl-shaped glass. I mean, what yep. was that just let's try it or it was an accident? I mean, because that was a big turning point. Well, it is a vision of a guy who uh, fell in love with wine. And we're talking here about the 1950s and 60s, so well ahead of the American wine consumption trend and uh, being a glassmaker and then my family was part of the tabletop industry so for us we were commissioned by porcelain producers to come forward with glasses that resembled the decors of porcelain plates so this is this is our heritage you know people wanted to decorate the table Riedel made chandeliers Riedel made uh, candlesticks Riedel made vases bowls anything all this kind glass. of stuff <laughs> anything in glass and just because my grandfather had a passion for wine, he held true to coming forward every year with a glass, which was, in terms of wine glass design, more and more simple. So he really grew up during the Bauhaus period. Form follows function. Less is more. There so for him, it was all about the wine in the glass and not the glass and the wine. So this is where we came from. All right. So you... You said earlier, you know, when you develop glasses, you talk to winemakers and a lot of other people. So that segues into my point that you were the first glassware company to introduce 
varietal specific wine glasses. So yeah. obviously, if you're talking to winemakers, winemakers are making every variety of grape, whether it's Pinot, Cab, yeah. White. Yeah. So that was the push. No, that was the uh, solution to an answer, which was uh, posed at my father in Japan in the early 1980s, where the first real glass collection, it was a set of nine glasses, and then we did not go by grape variety. We went by, for example, glasses for young white wine. And a Japanese journalist asked my father, so Mr. Riedel, tell us, what is a young white wine? And my father had a tough time because there are some wines which are 30 years of age and they still taste young and fresh. So that made my father rethink our philosophy and nothing changes the grape variety. You know, Age can influence it in a certain extent, but at the end, the grape variety determines the shape of the glass. And this is who we are thanks to being in the business for such a long time, being exposed to wine, traveling the wine world, working with people in the wine world, and giving us this kind of push. And, uh, well, I guess thanks to this Japanese journalist asking my father <laughs> the right question at the right time, we are where we are. Pushed him to consider. All right, let's talk about the elements of a wine glass, okay? I'm holding a wine glass. We have a bunch of beautiful wine glasses and some wine in front of us. There are, what, three elements to a good wine glass? Walk me through that. I would say, uh, depending on what you determine as three important elements for a good wine Struc glass. Uh, physical structure. Physical structure. So uh, we talked about the base, the stem, and the bowl. And I was the man in 2004 living in New York who said, we don't need stem. We don't need base. I invented the stemless wine glass. The O series. The O series. And so the reason why? The reason why was space. You know, living in Manhattan, not having the space, being young, being casual, not taking it as serious maybe as I should have. So I took away the stem and the base, and the glass kept the functionality because at Riedel, it's all about the bowl. It's all about the rim diameter. It's all about the flow of the wine. I actually call my glasses the conveyor belts because Why? they convey the message of wine okay. onto our palate. <laughs> All right. So the bowl is the most important. Because obviously when you made the O-series, you got rid of the stem and the base. Exactly. Not important. But some people still want to hold a beautiful wine glass well, with a delicate stem. More and more people. Finally, we get them to hold the glass by the stem right. if there is a stem attached. So the bowl obviously, is the vessel and the most important. There are elements, shape, size, rim, and diameter. Absolutely. Those are the things that you present in many different ways and sizes, yep. which makes it you know, a varietal specific glass and all of that. Absolutely. Um, explain that. Uh, I mean, just walk me through some basic things. Red wines require... So I would say uh, when we talk about uh, wine, we talk about flavor contributors, and that's my point of view. So the most basic and simple version is fruit and yeast, out of which we craft beautiful wines. And by trade and by tradition, the white wine bowl, the white wine glass is always smaller than the red wine bowl. And if you ask the question to anybody, why do you think that is? 
people won't have a, a good answer. I would call it tradition, and sometimes you need to break with tradition to have progress. But in this regard, it is a fact. The white wine bowl is always smaller than the red wine bowl because in white wines we have either fruit and yeast or fruit, yeast, and oak. But that's it. We don't talk about tannins. And when we talk about red wine, we talk about the four elements, which is fruit, yeast, oak, and tannin. Tannins. And that's the reason why the red wine bowl is always the bigger one versus the white wine bowl. So I think that is, that is step one. And then, of course, you have to go and start fine-tuning. Because if we have one shape, maybe, ladies and gentlemen, that's your favorite shape. And I would just take that shape and cut the height of the bowl. Uh, millimeter by millimeter, each time I cut it down, you will have a complete different expression of the wine in terms of flavor and aromas. That's how fine-tuned we have to be. So if I just lower, and meaning I, I in, in increase the rim diameter of a bowl step by step, you won't be able to recognize the wine anymore from one glass to the next. So you do sensory seminars and talks. Absolutely. And you will take the same wine and put it in different glasses, and people blind, can, right, usually? Yes. No, not only blind. I mean, the people can do this at home. Just take your favorite glass, being it a coffee mug, for example, pour right. into a coffee mug versus a modern-looking wine glass, the same wine. Smell it, taste it, and I always say feel your wine because the wine texture on the palate, most people don't refer to, but I think it's a key element when we talk about food and wine pairing. You will be amazed that different vessels can show the wine in such different ways that you don't recognize it anymore. So a good wine glass obviously makes wine better when... Well, I don't think that our shapes can make wine better or worse. We can only show it better. I like to call my glasses the loudspeaker of wine. You know, it's, it's like your bow system. You plug it in. Uh, and uh, all of a sudden you hear every pitch and every tone, and that's exactly what we do with uh, our glasses. So we cannot change the wine. Well, you uh, talk about changing the perception, We're changing too, the perception. Which is a word you use. Exactly. Versus, you know, that it changes. Yeah. Your perception is going to change. And if I quote my grandfather, he said, uh, people who drink wine from real glasses drink the better wine. So what we try really to do is really express the wine at its very best. So we are here to support the industry. One last point on the uh, physical nature of the glass. Um, materials. You talked about, you know, lead, acid polish and mm -hmm. all of that. Mm -hmm. I mean, you make a fine um, wine glass. Are the materials in this range of wine glasses similar or they can vary? I mean, is, are people making nice-looking glasses with cheap materials or glass is glass? No, glass is definitely not glass. That Right now, two, uh, there used to be three extremes. Now there are two extremes, which is uh, crystal glass and soda lime glass. So it's glass versus crystal. That is the expression. Okay. And then there used to be lead crystal, and then there used to be full lead crystal. And uh, we, as then being the largest producer of lead crystal in the world decided in the year 2015 to separate from lead in crystal and the reason was the European Union. They just said, uh, ladies and gentlemen, we don't know when, but we will ban lead in crystal. Uh, and so we were the forefathers in this sense. And of course, then in the United States, we have Proposition 65, 
uh, and uh, we suffered tremendously uh, because we had to communicate whenever wine was served in leaded glasses about Proposition 65. So we took the stand and moved away. And uh, what has changed is actually nothing. In the old days, we used lead crystal to really decorate the crystal because you could acid polish it. And there was a gentleman from England in the 19th century, which was Mr. George Ravenscroft, who came forward with the formula of lead crystal. Nowadays, we don't need it anymore. And, and it doesn't uh, compromise absolutely not, you know, because, the production uh, or quality of the glass. We have replaced the material with other uh, oxides, and so it allows us to come forward with the same brilliance, with the same clarity, and with the same ring. So when you cheer our glasses, you still have this wonderful sound <laughs> of crystal glasses. Right. It's a, it, it's a very nice ring. So it's been fairly consistent through the years. That's Absolutely. a trademark. Yeah. Um, you talked about how winemakers and other people uh, affect your... Um, what glasses you're going to make, but what else is um, an inspiration for developing new glasses? I mean, we're gonna, in a minute, we're going to talk about your newer line, the performance line. How does it come that, you know, I want to do this type of yeah. glass, I need this glass? Well, what uh, I would say many listeners don't know is that we are also being commissioned for certain products. And I would say one of the most impressive uh, commission that I have been uh, able to fulfill was by uh, Moet and Gendron. They were looking for first a new shape for Croque Rosé Champagne. And they came to me and said, uh, we believe in the philosophy of real, no more flutes. And I really call this my personal crusade because one of my internships was in, in Reims working for Tétanger uh, Champagne. And I realized that the professionals don't drink from flutes. And the reason being is the flute uh, enhances the nose when it comes uh, to yeast, but never the fruit of the wine. So that is a tradition that I had to break with. Away with the flutes, ladies and gentlemen. You want to do good to your champagne and to yourself. So they came to me and said, Mr. Riedel, we want uh, you to work with us on a new glass for Croque Rosé. And they said, very easy. We don't want a flute, but we also don't want to drink it from the Pinot Noir glass, which is one of my philosophies. Of course, when, when we think about champagne, we think about the three grape varieties which dominate, one of them being Pinot Noir. And when there is in the blend Pinot Noir, I always would recommend using our Pinot Noir glass for it. And so they said, we can't do this because the shape is too big. Come forward with a new concept, with a new idea. And this really influenced the look and feel of the new performance line because the new real performance line has a slight optic in the bowl and the optic needs to be explained because I call it the optic impact. So you have a little bit of an optic in the Is bowl. Is it called optic because when you look at it, yeah. you, you visually see something, something that you don't see on a regular wine glass. And this is not a design element. It's not to make the glass pretty because I don't care about aesthetics. I care about functionality. And what is this optic in the glass? It's actually enlarging the surface by about one third. So they wanted to have for Crook Rosé a small bowl with the same performance of a big bowl. Big wines need big glasses. People need to learn this. It's not my choice to come forward every year with a bigger glass, and people may not like me for that, but the wines appreciate that. So that's what I did, is I took a big bowl and I shrank it. 
and it created these kind of waves, which I would like to relate to as an optic. And if you would like, uh, if you would take the bowl, cut it in half, and restretch the surface, the surface would be about a third larger. So I was able to come forward with a small bowl that had the same performance as a big bowl, and this is what really influenced me. And I was influenced by uh, the request of Krug Champagne to come forward with uh, with this concept, with this philosophy. And once again, we are, yeah, a step ahead of competition. And I believe performance is the best wine glass on the market. So let period. me ask you a bunch of things about performance. So was the inspiration for performance the commission by Moet? Yes. Okay, that's number one. Number two, we, our listeners don't have the luxury and benefit of staring at the glass the way they do. So you're just going to have to go out and buy uh, it. Yes, But yes. when you look at it... Or online, I, online. I mean, Maximilian, do we call those ridges? Or how do you describe the I, optic? When you look at it, there are... Well, are um, are those vertical lines? Yeah, the vertical the lines, and uh, originally the optic was very dominant. It was too dominant so that when you sat down... You toned it back. ...over a glass of wine, you got dizzy. And not okay. because you drank too much wine, but because of the optic in the glass. So we reduced this to a minimum. And uh, when you touch the surface of the glass, you notice it's very smooth. So there is no sign of the optic. The optic is only inside. So if you reach with your finger inside, right. you have the optic. And that's when the wine sits in the glass, you swill the wine to lift the aromas, the molecules. Wine is made out of molecules like everything else. Light ones, small ones sitting on top and the heavier ones on the bottom. We want to swill the wine in the glass, lift them. And when you do this in the new performance line, the wine really flows over these ridges, so it is accelerated, and you get a much more uh, depth on the smell, the parfum of the wine. So the ridges create that, plus the, you described earlier, there's more <laughs> square footage in there too, right? Absolutely. Because when Absolutely. you said when you unroll it, yeah. it's, it's actually a longer thing. So you have the ridges, and you know it's traveling a little further. And I'm gonna so I, I guess now is a good time. <laughs> Today's program was brought to you by El Cortez, a colorful, bi-level restaurant in Bushwick, Brooklyn. El Cortez sports a bar on each floor, a patio for drinking zombies in the moonlight, and the capacity for just under a couple hundred revelers. New York Magazine's Chris Crowley profiled El Cortez, saying its owners aren't trying to mine Mexican restaurants of any era, but just mesh together a bunch of things that they like. The menu focuses on what they call all three Mexicans, hot plate, gringo, and Mexican-Mexican. There's no fried chicken queso or chili con carne, but mission-style burritos, loaded all-American tacos, and a chimichanga. There's also a cheeseburger, because who cares? Cocktails lean heavily in the direction of tiki and the kind of low-brow drinks that caused the mixology revolution. Classic drinks your grandparents definitely drank, like the pina colada and rum punch, made with quality ingredients and a whole bunch of trial and error. Visit El Cortez at 17 Ingraham Street in Bushwick or online at elcortezbushwick.com. Are you enjoying this podcast? Heritage Radio Network has plenty more. My name is Lisa Held, and I'm the host of The Farm Report here on HRN. The Farm Report is a show about the people, processes, and policies that shape how food is produced today. Expect from the field insights as guests explore how producing fresh, delicious food relates to environmental and community sustainability, justice, and better health. 
You can find The Farm Report wherever you listen to podcasts and on heritageradionetwork.org. All right, so we're pouring some wine, and what glass are we pouring into? We're pouring white wine into two different shaped white wine glasses just for you to experience this. Now, while you're doing that, um, was the movement towards champagne not being served in a flute, was that when you and Moe, they commissioned the glass? No. Did you make it more prominent or popular? Well, I would say when... Having uh, worked in the wine world, having worked uh, with the best sommeliers around the world, starting here in New York, I realized that uh, people who were very serious about champagne always used a white wine glass. That was my next question. So people who would like to up their game for champagne yes. and really get the flavor, the textures, yes. let it open. If you know, there are wine aficionados and they have a bunch of glasses. The glass they should use for a good champagne is a good white wine glass? I would say, uh, I mean, there are so many different shaped white wine glasses. Go with the Riesling shape. Okay. Good. Go with the Riesling shape, which is uh, much more narrow on top. It's a very slender glass. This allows you to really, uh, for the first time, and please compare it at home in a white wine glass versus your flute and just put your nose into the flute versus the white wine glass. Big difference. You fall, you fall in love with champagne once again because you always missed the parfum. You had it on your palate. You had probably a nice story to tell. But not to forget, if we think about Thanksgiving, the best wine to go with this mess on the table of different uh, right. ingredients is always champagne. I think champagne checks a lot of boxes Absolutely. off for all kinds of food, Absolutely. not so, just the obvious So things. don't imprison it in the flute, right. good? Let it flow. Right. Um, open up your glass and drink more champagne. All right, let's talk about, let's get into this. I have a bunch of other questions, but let's focus on this right now. We're drinking white wine. Uh, Maximilian put two glasses in front of us. One to my right is more of the traditional um, size, and the one on my left is more of a... How would you describe more of a bowl? And um, is one the performance? Both of Both are the performance. One is the performance Riesling. One is the performance Chardonnay. We okay. actually have Chardonnay in the glass. Okay. So if we would uh, research the grape of Chardonnay, we are always looking in Chardonnay for acidity and minerality because the wine by DNA has a lot of fruit to offer. So what we want is, in Chardonnay, this amazing texture. So we want to have this uh, beautiful texture on the palate. We want to have a long-lasting aftertaste. And thanks to the shape of the glass, we can get this very easy communicated to our senses. So right now, if you just pick up both white wine glasses, one in one hand, one in the other hand, we clink them just to... sharpen our senses. Yeah, absolutely. And then just put your nose into... One glass after the other. So now we're in the bigger bowl. This is our Chardonnay bowl, so it has a wider rim diameter. And I want you to really stay with the nose in the glass. Inhale, exhale into the bowl, inhale again. Because the Don't first impression... Don't to get your nose in there. Yeah, you won't snorkel. Good, we're not over-pouring our glass. So when you really stay with your nose in there, first impression fruit, and then comes minerality, then comes secondary aromas. So we want to get 
three-dimensional, four-dimensional. We want to get everything that the wine has to offer in a very easy way communicated. That's Is it always fruit first that you're going after or uh, not necessarily? No, I think that's that's human nature, that we're always looking okay. for the fruit first. Yeah. We're, we're trying to really balance the fruit with acidity and minerality. On the nose, between the two glasses, day and night. Well, can I give you my observation? Go ahead. I would assume the Chardonnay glass, because it's more open, would be, you know, bursting. But actually, the Riesling glass is showing me more of the nose. Is that a contrarian... Well, what we're looking for in wine is the fruit. So in the Riesling glass, which is a very slim, uh, tall standing glass with a narrow rim diameter, you get first the burn in your nose because it's the alcohol. So this glass really shows the power of the wine and you're losing somewhat uh, the fine aromas, the fine parfum. And if you go into the bigger bowl for Chardonnay, being it a powerful wine, high, maybe also in alcohol, we're talking here about close to 15%, you notice that it is really easy uh, to determine the fine nuances. It's easy to talk about the wine. It's easy to dream about the wine, to really describe all the little bits of aroma, starting from uh, a little bit of uh, tropical fruit to nuttiness to oakiness versus in the, in the Riesling glass, it's hiding, you know? So there's the confirmation that the glass makes the difference. I mean, these are both terrific glasses, but if you want to really enjoy Chardonnay, and correct me if I'm wrong, to its maximum potential, it opens up shows best in a bull Chardonnay glass. Absolutely. That's the point. I mean, That's it, the point. you're not going to lose much here, yeah. but if you really want to fine tune it. Yeah. <clears throat> and I'm assuming that the Riesling would show differently in this versus the glass it would bring out its attributes, right? Absolutely. And now I'm just pouring you a third glass, which is our Pinot Noir glass, which we used to call our Burgundy glass. And this is the number one mistake that all the sommeliers make in the United States, but not only here around the world. People think Burgundy needs to go into one glass, not understanding that actually Pinot Noir and Chardonnay, besides terroir, have absolutely nothing in common. It almost smells like a Montrachet in this glass. Yeah. It's totally different. Uh, uh, but I would like that you taste it from the Pinot glass versus the Chardonnay glass. Well, I'm going to make one observation. Go ahead. I'm sure bef I'm cutting into you, but that top, the rim, has a different shape than the other glasses, which I'm sure is by design Absolutely. and will have an effect, which you will explain to me. Yeah. So when you drink from the Pinot glass, because of this lip, this little rim that we have, the wine goes directly to the tip of your tongue. So it's directional. It's it directional. forces the wine. Yeah. Which is good for Pinot Noir, where we talk about high unbalanced acidity, but we're lacking this kind of acidity in Chardonnay. So if you now taste it from the Chardonnay glass, you notice that the wine flow, as I call them conveyor belts, is completely different. It goes to the center of your palate. And it spreads out more. Spreads out more. Shows you the fruit, shows you minerality. Creates the initial a initial attack is not concentrated. At the tip of the... Fr correct. And it shows you really the wine on your palate, the beautiful texture, and what I love about it, long-lasting aftertaste, which really gets you going now, thinking, what is the perfect food and wine pairing? And this message of wine from the right glass is long-lasting. It doesn't go away until you eat something or maybe you drink a glass of water. I agree. Um, all right, so... So we had the wine now out of three different shaped glasses. Three different 
presentations. Three different presentations. One literally physically, the change of the rim, you know, uh, forces the wine into your mouth a certain way. Um, So we have deduced that if you really enjoy wine, you really should seek out the proper glassware for those type of wines. And there's only one, Riedel. Well, yeah, I mean, we're, <laughs> we're, we're talking to Maximilian Riedel, so we're only talking Riedel. Um, all right, we're going to try the same experiment with the red wine in a minute. But before we get to that, I want to ask you a question. Um, you're a big proponent of decanting, um, and you even decant champagne, which I don't think people relate champagne to being decanting so i have two observations of course you're a big proponent of decanting because you want to sell decanters and decanting champagne makes you a little crazy which both things are very credible things well i don't think that in the language of wine or in the wine world you can call anybody crazy because wine speaks to you differently than it speaks to me everybody tastes different everybody smells different but I was brought up in this world. I was really, I'm not somebody who uh, after, after school uh, wanted to become a sommelier or entered the wine world. I grew up with wine. I was always surrounded by people, leading people in the wine world, being it an Angelo Gaia, uh, being it a Robert Mondavi and his family, being it Christian Moex and many, many, many others whom I'm very thankful for, for teaching me. And decanting champagne, is actually the original wine to be decanted. So there's history that goes with that. So Why does it help? Uh, no, at the beginning it was not the thought of helping. At the beginning it was splitting the wine from the yeast because a bottle of champagne needs the yeast for the second fermentation. This modern technique of freezing the yeast in the neck to remove it is fairly new. So up until then, by trade, people must have decanted all the champagnes unless you wanted yeast stuck between your teeth. No good. (laughs) And definitely, if people drink all the wines, you know, maybe not the taste of yeast, but you know the experience of having wine sediment on your palate. Some people don't like it. Some people don't appreciate it. So that was the original thought. The first wine I believe in the world to be decanted was champagne because you had to remove the yeast from, uh, from the beverage. Nowadays, and when you speak to more and more champagne houses, they follow this kind of philosophy. In particular, young champagnes need to be decanted. Why? Well, I would say not only young champagnes, all the young wines need to be decanted. Decanting wine is a maturing process. Wine in your cellar matures by taking oxygen through the cork. And uh, many wines need to have this kind of maturation. If you talk to maybe uh, First Gross Bordeaux and if you talk to Chateau Latour, they will tell you that they won't release the new vintages prior to 10 years or even longer because they really feel that wine needs to mature in the bottle. It gets better. And sometimes we don't have the luxury to buy mature wines, in particular in restaurants. So we go to the restaurant and please, ladies and gentlemen, do yourself a favor ask all of your wines to be decanted. Red, white, champagne, and rosé, you will benefit from this. It's not that it looks cool, uh, it is a snobbyish thing to do, it is the cause of really enjoying wine. And if you talk to uh, Christian Moex, the owner of uh, Dominus, for example, or Petrus, or Petrus in the old days, doesn't own it anymore, right. um, then um, 
he would have been the first person to say, the first thing in the morning you do when brushing your teeth is going to your wine cellar, pick the wine that you want to drink that evening, pull the cork, let it sit for eight hours. In the bottle, okay. In the bottle. Then the wine is ready to be consumed. So for that, you don't need a decanter. Well, I'm not the kind of guy who goes in the morning right. in my trunks to the wine cellar because I don't With know. Toothpaste I'm, on your face. I'm so confused in the morning. I would not even know where to find it. So the only way to get there in a fast way is by decanting wine. But when you say decanting the wine matures the wine, it matures the wine by introducing oxygen into it? Correct. Is that the, the theory of? Exposing it to oxygen, its natural aging of the wine, maturing process of the wine. Uh, don't think that by doing this that the alcohol content will go down. Absolutely okay. not. Good. So we're not having so an angel. a big California we, cold cab, exactly. decanting it no. won't have an effect on, on the, the alcohol. alcohol. So don't decant and drive. That does not make sense. We're not talking about an angel share like we have with spirits. Right. Good. So that's, that's complete. But young wines sometimes still have the, the smell and taste of uh, sulfite. It sulfite. lets it sort of burn off or it blow burns off. off completely and the same is with champagne so that's the main reason now we've talked about glass shape and size what about decanters size shape opening does that matter or just the process is the important thing and the vessel is just the way to get it out of the bottle in there what it, can you tell me about so that? the size of a decanter the shape of a decanter has a great impact and we actually are that i would say fanatic uh, we love decanting we love designing our decanters this is where the glass makers can also show how uh, how how well trained they are the expertise because creating such decanters that you would see in the real portfolio uh, being the handmade ones, this is a, this is an art skill sure. to craft, and every decanter is slightly different. So it is your personal handmade decanter, and uh, the bigger the better, the bigger the better okay. because we expose it to more oxygen. We have some very tricky ones where, for example, the Eve decanter that looks like an upright standing cobra. Uh, which is actually a design that I had patent because it allows to pre-pour a, a, a pour of glass, a full glass of wine. But it is also that uh, the wine, when it flows into the belly of the decanter, it follows the earth gravitation uh, circle and it energizes the wine. I mean, we can talk hours about it, but I don't want to bore anybody about my philosophy why I decant wine. At the end, it makes you look very good when a, when a sommelier stands in front of his customer, I always call him the entertainer. And use your stage, use the time to really use nice-looking decanters because everybody has a benefit, not only that the wine tastes better, but it's also a show, and we want to entertain Function you. Function and aesthetics Absolutely. working together. One last thing on decanting. Um, I would gather you decant old wines also to separate the sediment. Absolutely. Can you over decant an old wine? I, I, I mean, you have to have some kind yep. of knowledge. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, I would like to, maybe uh, the listeners are not aware of this, but I was taught this by Mr. Mondavi himself. He tells me, or he told me, uh, that uh, when do you uh, declare a bottle of wine old? Do you go by the vintage? No, because I have had wines, I was in a very lucky situation that had 100 years plus, and they tasted and, and smelled like young wines. But we say, in average, when the wine tastes better than it smells, 
it is above and beyond its peak. It's not bo spoiled. Uh, it's don't go by the color, it fades. So when it starts to taste better than it smells, and sometimes old wine can have this typical medicine cabinet smell to right. them. So I think that's uh, one way to, to define it. Then uh, you know that maybe you should not decant the wine anymore. Okay. And especially not in one of our special decanters because you might overstretch it. And we know what happens to wine that has been exposed to too much oxygen. It turns into vinegar. So right. we want to avoid this. So sometimes you're better off not to decant old wines because you might miss the window when they show themselves at the best. So right. also it's not advisable to put them back into the fridge and drink the rest of it the next day. No. So young wines, you can do this. Uh, no problem, but with old wines, be cautious, celebrate the moment, open it with friends and family. Don't forget, wine unites us and water divides us. And, uh, and especially right. with old wines, drink <laughs> it drink <laughs> it immediately, drink it, it fast. Good advice. Um, one more question. In pouring wine, what's the perfect pour? Every glass size is different, but... Are we going a third, half? Are we going 60%? I mean, what is the, the initial? Forget what a restaurant should do. Forget what you do. If you're serving, what's the right pour? Well, I always like to start uh, this kind of discussion with a doctor. When the doctor tells okay. you a glass a day is healthy, choose your glass wisely. Good. Okay. <laughs> Some of our real glasses, if you fill them to the rim, could hold a full bottle of wine. Good. That's obviously not the purpose. Wine should be shared. The reason why I don't want to overpour my glass is not only aesthetics, education, and balance. It is maybe the temperature of the wine. I like to serve my wines cool. I don't want to say chilled, cool. And I'm talking red about red too. wine right. and white wine. A little wine. above cellar temperature. Exactly, depending on what your cellar is adjusted at, but I like to serve them somewhat cooler. And if you are, depending on where you are, at what time you are, and you overpour, you might lose that temperature. And there's nothing worse than warm champagne, warm Riesling, warm Chardonnay, or even warm red wine, because when wine gets warm, Typical with alcoholic beverages, it shows the alcohol, not the fruit. So that's, so a, that's an overpour. That's an overpour. Is so there a detriment to an underpour? <laughs> Depending on the price of the wine. Okay. Uh, but if I'm, and I'm going to pour now for you, people don't see it, but you see it, the perfect pour. I am going to, when you stop, I am going to take a picture while we're on air, and I'm going to post that. So that, so that is that. So Maximilian, that glass is which glass? That would be now the Cabernet glass. The Cabernet glass. The capacity is more than a bottle of wine. If you would fill it to the rim, which I'm not doing. As you can see now, if it would take another picture, I say it's a two-finger pour. Okay. Good. So uh, we're talking here about maybe two to three ounces is what I would like to pour. This way, the glass is perfectly balanced. You're allowed to really swill the wine in the glass hard, lift those aromas, make them rise. So also when you put your nose into the glass, there's enough distance between the beverage and your nose so that you really can enjoy the fine aromas. That, that's critical. In looking at you doing that, yeah. The pour too high would it would almost roll into your nose and you start you would snorkeling. Be on top of it, yeah, yeah, you, you wouldn't so. want that. And also, when you pour the right amount, the glasses still sound perfectly. They get dulled or buffered when you exactly. So that's exactly. a good test too. All right, now last thing on that: fine glasses, 
hand wash, dishwash, doesn't matter. Don't ever dishwash. You can. Depends on the glass. Sam, I love your questions. Uh, you speak from my heart. I would put all my glasses in the dishwasher. Okay. I don't think people would necessarily think that. Yeah. So you're telling them it's okay. Yeah. So if you have wine glasses that, um, that you really cherish, uh, do yourself the favor, put them in the dishwasher, but don't overstaff the dishwasher. Space them out. Don't let them fight against knives. Make sure forks. they're secure so they're not. Make them secure, absolutely. The reason is when you, after a bottle of wine, are full of emotions and then try to force your hand <laughs> into the glass, you have two you less will, glasses than You next will day. have breakage. You might right. injure yourself. Put them into the dishwasher. Modern dishwashers really know how to treat your glasses. And, uh, and they will take best care of them. All right. So I want to move along to a segment called our wine list. It's where I ask my guests to talk about their wine preferences. Um, instead of just talking about empty glasses or half-full glasses, I want to talk about your personal preferences and what you like because I think, like you said earlier, you're around the world. You talk to everybody. Your exposure to wine is probably second to none. So we ask five questions. Don't obsess over them. The first question is, what is Maximilian drinking now? Not on the table, but is there any seasonal interest? Are you tasting through something new? What are the things that are current? Well, first of all, I'm from Austria, and we Austrians make delicious wines. So wherever I travel in the world, I try to drink local wines. Being now in the United States, I love the wines from Long Island, believe it or not, especially the white wines. Uh, even though they make some great Malot. And then, of course, I love American Chardonnay and Cabernet. So being an American, that's what I drink. In Austria, I would love to have a glass of Grüner Veltliner. I am seasonal because I travel the world and I like to take vacation. And I can't wait for the summer to kick in to finally taste the latest vintage of uh, rosé wines. Okay. So... Seasonal is important. Location is important. Yes. That dictates. You yes. know, a lot of people say, you know, I'm trying some Spanish wines, Catalonia. No. I get that. Well, you always get me out <coughs> of the reserve when you pour me Pinot Noir because that's by far my most preferred grape variety. Okay. I'm glad you said that too. Do you have a favorite wine and food pairing? Is there something that resonates to you yes. that you go back to? Tell me what yes. it is. Uh, obscene, but fact. Nothing <laughs> okay. tastes better than Pinot Noir with white chocolate. Really? First on this show. I don't think anybody would say that. And just tell me why the two... Well, everybody has had cherries or strawberries dipped into white chocolate. That's what it smells. That's what, That's it, what it tastes like. That's what it is. Good call. Um, this may be tough for you to answer. It, it may not be tough, but because you travel around so much... Do you have a favorite wine restaurant and or bar? And I'm pointing you towards places that just do yep. wine well, yep. their knowledge, their selection. Yep. It could I, be anywhere. I think that uh, it is truly a place where everybody should visit when you are in London. There's a new restaurant called Hyde. H-Y-D-E? Yes, okay. which is made by the people who have, uh, the, to me, the most amazing wine shop in the world called Hedonism. And they okay. just opened a restaurant last year. It just got a Michelin star. That's not the reason why you go there. You go there to be entertained, and you go there to have a wine selection. There is nothing in the world like it. Really? Besides that, if you're in New York, um, I always go for the wines on a menu where I feel that uh, age, quality, and price must match. And uh, you can do this... Uh, 
nowadays in many places, but I'm just coming from Oslo and from Copenhagen. Great from food Denmark. and wine market now. But it's the only wine market where you can still buy uh, Bordeaux and Burgundy at decent prices and go crazy there. So very interesting. It's I heard one of the preferred markets for Bordeaux and Burgundy to sell to because people don't uh, really try to make money off the wine. They want right. to indulge you on the food and the quality, and the wine is a nice add-on. Those are great recommendations and, and spot-on. Um, do you have a favorite all-time wine? Now, let me set this question up. Sometimes it can't be one, so if it's a few, that's fine. As I've been doing this show, it used to be the rarest and most expensive wines. It's kind of morphed into experiential. Like we had this champagne when we got engaged, and that's a favorite all-time wine for that reason. Is there anything that you can think of? Well, I can and think, there's no I, right I, or wrong I, 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 answer. I, 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 you no, don't no, have no, to no, impress I, I, me. What's, it's, I'm more I, interested I, I, in what, you know. Look, I'm not here to impress. I'm here to, to really give you an impression about my wine preferences. And uh, I mentioned my relationship uh, to Crook, which is, uh, is strong, but not as strong as with Dom Perignon. I am a fan, I am a, I am, I am a lover of, uh, of Dom Perignon. Love it or hate it, for me, it is one of the greatest wines ever made. And uh, no matter where, no matter at what time, I love to enjoy it. And when I flow on Emirates the last time, being served Dom Perignon, and I don't drink w alcohol in flight, I had the whole bottle. I, so, I so much enjoyed it. Just so that was a very special so moment. Yeah. And I think the 2008 is in the market, and it's just a wonderful vintage. Wow. I mean, it's the last vintage uh, of, uh, of uh, Richard Geoffroy and, right. uh, and calling in the new, the new uh, Top Gun. I've been there. I was invited to their event uh, in Epanay. It was just mind-blowing. All right, last question. Uh, you have to answer it because it's part of the list, and I ask everyone because we want our listeners to be pointed by the best people in the right direction. Talk to me about, in your mind, U.S. dollars, 15 to 20 bucks, the best white and red wine you could recommend. It doesn't have to be specific. It could be Gruner, may fall in there, Muscadet. It could be varietal, country. What do you think? And, and here's what I always tell people. My kids are in their 20s. They're going to a party. They don't want to spend eight, nine bucks and get a crappy bottle of wine. But they're not spending 30, 40 either because they're not there yet. But they want to bring something good and impressive. So if they spend 15, 18, 20 bucks, where would you point them for a red? Where would you point well, them for a white? Depending on where you are, I mean, all over the world, we have really fine wine stores. And I would go to the wine store and have the people advise me because they have really the thumb on the pulse of the wine world, and you can really believe and trust in them. They're well-educated, they're trained. I don't want to call out a single wine shop at this time, but... You don't have to, and you're not the first person who said, if you can identify a good wine shop, they go out of their way exactly. to put those exactly. selections. Exactly, but still, I'm Austrian, and I would recommend Grüner Wettliner. Okay, but, which does <laughs> fall into that category. Absolutely. All right, so while I'm reaching over and trying to twist your arm, does any red come to mind? Uh, yes, and ladies and gentlemen, hold on tight. 
Oh. We were commissioned to create a glass for the country of Georgia, former Ooh. Soviet a Union. A upcoming wine region. Absolutely. A lot and, of amphora. And all of the winemakers came to us to work on a glass for Saparavi. Saparavi is a grape variety, a red wine grape variety, which is one of the few grapes that have a red skin and red flesh juice. And if you can find this, you will find this at that price, and you will be amazed. Might become your favorite wine. Spell spell Saparavi. Very difficult. Me. I'll look it up. Then. <laughs> okay, I, I know what you're talking about. All right, Maximilian, we got to wrap up. Um, time has really flown. I, we tried to get as much in. Let me do a show wrap, and I will set you on your way. If you have a question, suggestion, wine happening, or event, hit me up at Sam at thegrapenation.com. That's Sam at thegrapenation.com. Follow us on Facebook at The Grape Nation. Follow us on Instagram at SBenRuby and hashtag The Grape Nation. On Twitter, we're at BenRuby. Also subscribe to The Grape Nation podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, and Spotify. I will post Maximilian's wine list on our social media so people have access. We do that with everyone. I will also post some information about the glasses and all that. But more importantly, Maximilian, if people really want to get a deep dive into understanding and ultimately buying Riedel glasses, where are the best places for them to go? Well, first of all, on Riedel.com. Okay, R-I-E-D-E-L.com. Absolutely. And then you find mm. us maybe at your fine wine store around the corner or find us at Williams Sonoma or right. Bloomingdale's. They're uh, very accessible. Absolutely. Um, and they're, we didn't really talk about the line in the SKUs, but, I mean, Riedel makes hundreds of different SKUs and glasses, decanters, different lines price at points. different price level. I mean, you could get yourself a box of, if you're a cab drinker, a box of fine cab glasses, you know, at one of their uh, product levels um, for very fair prices. And, you know, as we try to explain to you, it matters. So look for that. Um, so I want to thank you, Maximilian Riedel, for sitting down with us and spending all this time um, thank you to everyone at the Heritage Radio Network. I'm Sam Ben Ruby, and you've been listening to The Grape Nation. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to learn more about our 10-year anniversary celebration happening all year long, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com backslash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.